what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. I became a mom about 14 and a half years ago. It wasn't something I'd ever thought about growing up. I didn't fantasize about raising kids. I was never a babysitter. Heck, I didn't really like other kids when I was a kid, let alone as an adult. So I knew nothing when it came to how to take care of a baby. And that's not an exaggeration. Absolutely nothing. But I did know how to do research. So I did what a lot of new moms were doing in 2008. I waded neck deep into the turbulent waters of mom message boards. My boards of choice were at The Bump, the sister site to the wedding-oriented The Knot. It was here when I learned about things like attachment parenting, vaccine hesitancy, and cloth diapering. Now, only one of those was useful to me, but all of them instilled significant anxiety. These message boards not only told me what I needed to know about throwing poopy cloth diapers in the washing machine, the board also acted as a lifeline to other mothers who were as anxious and overwhelmed as I was. Now, my relationship with the internet and with motherhood has evolved quite a bit in the last 14 years. My kid has evolved quite a bit too. She's playing varsity field hockey this year. There's a savvier part of me that now understands some of the power dynamics and psychological maneuvering that took place on those boards back then, and that understands how things that seemed innocent enough at the time have actually blossomed into some of the most troubling corners of the web. Even still, damn, I am so grateful for the support I found as I was learning about myself as a mother. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores navigating the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. So I had my first kid in 2012, and at the time, nobody in my peer group had really had kids. That's Sarah Peterson. She writes a newsletter called In Pursuit of Clean Countertops. Her book, Momfluenced, will be out next February. My cousin's wife was the only one around my age that I knew. And I remember texting her just being like, what do I need to buy? Like, what do I need to do? Just tell me anything. Because, you know, I had my mom, my aunts, my grandmothers, but they had had kids so long ago. It just felt like a very unchartered territory that I was entering into. Today, with Sarah's help, we're going to dig into the spectacle of momfluencing to explore the wider impact that a whole new panoply of social media role models is having on our identities, goals, and personal growth. I think all of us enter into motherhood sort of bewildered, confounded, and clueless. And so there is just a really human desire to connect with other people who have recently gone through it, who are currently going through it. This is the fifth episode in our Self-Help LLC series, where we're examining the business and politics of self-help, how the medium of self-help influences our lives, and whether we're all in the self-help business now. 
When Sarah and I first encountered the internet of moms, influencers didn't exist yet, at least not in the sense that we use the word today. Twitter and Facebook were gaining mainstream appeal, but they hadn't taken over public discourse yet. When I became a mom, Instagram didn't even exist. And when Sarah became a mom, it was still in its infancy. Most often, moms were connecting in web 1.0 ways. But as the internet was starting to change, so was our perceptions of motherhood. The 2010s were giving way to an image-oriented lifestyle economy. This is the time when brands became communities that then became culture. Brands learned to align themselves with different types of people. Whole Foods had the health-conscious bohemian bourgeoisie. Apple had entrenched itself with anyone who didn't want to be seen as a PC. Warby Parker had courted the cool intellectual types. Now, it's tempting to see the lifestyle brands we gravitate to, as mothers or not, as a reflection of our essential selves. But it's clear the brands have learned to leverage aspiration even more than present identity. Brands don't help us discover ourselves. Brands help us make ourselves. And that means that brands exist within the medium of self-help. I've been thinking a lot about the role images play in our relationship to self-help. Many of the textual messages of self-help are tired and forgettable now. If you tell me you can help me live my best life, I will give you my biggest Liz Lemon eye roll. Stop it right now! But images exist on another plane of consciousness. We process them differently from textual messages. In his essay, Rhetoric of the Image, Roland Barthes argues that when we see an image, our minds treat it as objective reality. Even a highly stylized image has the power to appear real and natural in our minds. Brands leverage the rhetoric of the image to transmit messages about who we can be, what we will want, and how we will look once we've collected the necessary products. Brands help us construct a spectacle of improvement and teach us how to share what we've achieved with others. And to bring it back to my sto- the story of when I was first pregnant, getting the list of stuff from my cousin's wife, it felt so manageable. <laughs> I mean, there's one human who I know in real life giving me like a list of 10 things. And now, regardless of whether or not I'm buying everything that every momfluencer is trying to sell me, if I go online, I'm barraged by other people's versions of motherhood. Theorist Guy Debord predicted this phenomenon back in the 1960s. He wrote, quote, As reality is increasingly represented as images to be experienced by sight alone, Eventually, a completely separate pseudo-world of images emerges, where the actual reality is only represented but never actually experienced, merely performed, and eventually simulated. You know, in some ways, of course, it's wonderful and valuable to learn about other people's experiences in the world, of course. But when motherhood is tied so directly to commerce and shopability it gets really confusing really quickly. There are just so many accounts that, you know, 
tell you the best way to do X, Y, and Z. The best way to feed your kid, the best way to wean your baby, the best way to sleep train, the best way to decorate your nursery, the best uh, wooden toys to buy your kid, the best flowers to plant in the garden to, you know, endorse creativity. It just goes on and on and on and on. And motherhood is so fascinating as a consumer category because it can really cover everything. If we think back to my conversation with Kelly Deals about the female lifestyle empowerment brand, we can see this on full display. Sure, some people who post wildly aspirational photos of themselves in Instagram-worthy Airbnb rentals are actually experiencing that life. Although it's worth questioning whether one is really experiencing that life if constantly under the pressure to document and share it. But I'd venture to say that most people who share those dreamy pics are more likely performing, even simulating, the aesthetic trappings of that lifestyle rather than actually experiencing it as reality. My conversation with Steph Baron Hall about posting educational Enneagram graphics to Instagram is another example. One of the reasons that self-help knowledge content does so well on that platform is that people want to share things about themselves, myself included, without actually experiencing the vulnerability of a human relationship with hundreds or thousands of followers. While our consumer culture has been tracking in this direction for a long time, much longer than a single decade, we've seen a confluence of media creation, technology, and economic precarity, which has led to the widespread adoption of what Debord calls the society of the spectacle. And the tidal wave hit sometime between when Sarah Peterson had her first child and her second. When I had had my second kid, I discovered um, Naomi Davis. Before we even start, I feel like I have to say that this is not sponsored at all. Um, These are the brands and the products that I really love and I really use. She's sort of one of the OG mommy bloggers turned momfluencer. She had a blog called Love Taza. And her photos were so, so beautiful. Her account is kind of famous for being like really bright colors, like anthropology vibes, you know, bright red lipstick, freckles everywhere, just very like joyful, fun. And by that point, I had, I don't know, like a two-year-old and a newborn. And I totally had been disabused of the notion that motherhood was like this beautiful performance of femininity that I had sort of gone in thinking it would be. And so here I am with a newborn and a toddler, just very uh, bogged down in the active labor of mothering. And I saw Naomi's account and her page and her Instagram. And there was really something entrancing about embodying my motherhood in a way that like made me the star and like built me up and fulfilled me. And I don't know, contributed to my personhood in a way that mothering was not. And so that's when I started becoming really obsessed with this idea of embodying whatever one's ideals of motherhood are versus the mundane routine, you know, sometimes monotonous, sometimes boring, always repetitive labor of mothering and sort of the disconnect between the two. There's the physical and visual performance of ideal motherhood. And then there's the banal monotony of reality. Once you get sucked into the world of momfluencers, this dichotomy tags along with you for as long as you keep opening the apps. 
But this phenomenon isn't limited to aspirational momfluencing, of course. I notice it when my image of a colleague has been shaped by their photo shoots, and when I finally meet them in person or on Zoom, I'm presented with something closer to what's real. I notice it when I embark on an epic hike, only to realize that the promotional photos must have been taken before the crowds arrived. The challenge with mediating our goals and desires through spectacle is that we yearn to perform to the standards of the spectacle without considering what was required to produce the image or performance. We attempt to make ourselves over to fit an image rather than an experience. Now, that's not to say that the performance or its representation isn't authentic to some degree. It's that the labor required to document it is completely hidden. So while we might be able to recreate part of the performance for ourselves and even enjoy it, the performance won't naturally lead to the perfect image. We'll always be a little less than satisfied, even when we have exactly what we think we want. I like to look at the word performance really holistically and broadly because I believe we all perform various versions of ourselves for various audiences every day, all the time, regardless of whether we're on social media or not. Like I perform a version of myself at preschool pickup. I perform a version of myself, you know, getting drinks with friends. It's all like we all have various selves that we bring to the table. I do see everything almost anyone does on social media as a performance. You know, you're making calculated, deliberate decisions about what to share, why to share, and what type of audience you're hoping to impact by what you're sharing. That being said, I think the momfluencers who are most successful, they do have, you know, a sense of savvy and a sense of understanding what their audience gravitates to. Like the really successful ones know if their audience wants like unfiltered shots of like leaky boobs or they know if their audience would rather look at like a beautiful kitchen with a vase of flowers instead. Like, so I think in essence, yes, we're all performing all the time, but I think monetize monfluencers who make a really good living doing this stuff are first and foremost, just really savvy businesswomen. And they have a whole host of skill sets that contribute to making their accounts successful. There are some there are some brilliant academic researchers who have looked into sort of the fraught nature of performing one's selfhood for monetary value and for all sorts of cultural currency. And the layers of labor that go into it are so just <laughs> are so plentiful I mean, you're doing sort of the nuts and bolts work of taking photos, of hiring videographers, of um, setting up meetings with brands, of negotiating your contract, of getting your kids in cute clothes, wiping their faces before the camera starts rolling, like all of these nuts and bolts things. And you're also constantly dealing with like a barrage of input from your audience. You're dealing with like, you know, responding to comments, responding to DMs, and you and these people have they have to have a clear connection to what their online self represents and how to maintain that sense of authenticity that keeps people reeled in this varied input and careful output require a particular kind of discipline from influencers 
Emily Hund, an influencer researcher, spoke with numerous influencers who describe this process as a form of disciplining particular aspects of themselves that they wish to project into a cohesive brand voice that is easily digestible to audiences. That is hard work that's rarely identified as such. But it's work that's necessary to maintain a personal brand that reads legibly to both audiences and potential brand partners. And it's necessary to nurture the kind of trust required of parasocial role models. I have an example in my book about there's this one mom influencer who's like catnip for me. She lives on an island in Maine and just seems to like have a very fun, cool life. She's always making things by hand. And it's just like her photos are beautiful and aspirational. And I've I've clicked through on her sponsored links to like sunscreen, to vitamins, whatever. But if she suddenly served me an ad for like a jingly, jangly, ugly plastic toddler toy, it would be completely out of step with her entire ethos and the story that she's created. And I would immediately be like, no, this is this is wrong. This is not authentic. This isn't like the person I think she is. And so that's why I feel like the performance of authenticity is mostly about creating a cohesive story and sticking to it. In the last episode about Instagram and personality types, I introduced Cooley's concept of the looking glass self. And I'm reminded of that in this example when Sarah says that a misaligned product recommendation wouldn't reflect the person I think she is. Influencers craft representations of their story in response to what others believe the story is. That means that when we look to influencers as parasocial role models or blueprints for our own self-improvement, we're entering an isolated pseudo-reality that Guy Debord argues separates individuals from each other. The spectacle of the influencer creates the effect of one looking glass self peering into another looking glass self, that is, an infinite mirror, reflecting back a cascade of images, each one a bit further from reality. The impact of this on our mental health is well documented, so I'll spare you an accounting of it. But Sarah stirs the pot by adding in the commercial and financial components of momfluencing. I did like a survey of a hundred-ish people for the book asking like, you know, what's the strangest thing you've ever bought because of a momfluencer's influence? One of them mentioned toothpicks. And like, what? Yes. Like <laughs> there were, somebody mentioned a butter mold, somebody met, like vintage this, that, and the other, but toothpicks, like we are buying toothpicks because of this influencer economy. And at least for me and for many of the people I interviewed for the book, every time I buy something from an account who represents some sort of maternal ideal, it's not like I consciously think if I buy these toothpicks, I will be a better, happier mother. But subconsciously, I think I do think that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like there's a reason like our consumer habits when tied to people who we feel like we think we know are inextricably linked to our senses of self. One of the critiques of degrowth, post-capitalism, and other departures from our current system is that people won't be happy if they can't buy whatever small luxuries they want to buy. 
rarely does that critique acknowledge that a key reason we have the insatiable urge to buy is the direct impact of consumer capitalism. Market forces and cost-benefit analyses pervade our private and social lives, the impact of which Debord describes as degrading life from a state of being to a state of having. Now, having, in this sense, doesn't just refer to buying the material goods on offer. It means possessing a story that's associated with the ideal while being more or less alienated from the capacity to even consider what being might entail. Debord writes, quote, The spectacle presents itself as an endless parade of new products, as a repeating presentation of the system's self-validating rationale, and as an economic system that outputs an increasing multitude of image objects. The spectacle is itself the leading product of contemporary society. We are doing and buying things because we want to be a certain type of person and a certain type of mother. And motherhood as an identity is so worshipped and revered in this country, whereas the labor of mothering is completely unsupported systemically. So it's really, really easy to get trapped in this, like, if I just look like the perfect mother and my house looks like I'm the perfect mother, then maybe I will feel it. Because right now I'm feeling like shit a lot of the time. Influencers of all stripes have a particular grammar to the way they communicate. Not grammar as in don't end a sentence with a preposition, which isn't a thing anymore, okay? But grammar in terms of the structure of communication. And even if you don't consider yourself an influencer, if you're offering advice or education via social media or content marketing, you're probably fluent in this grammar too. I find that thinking in terms of grammar is really helpful here because it makes it harder for me to write off someone as manipulative or attention-seeking. They're simply using the dominant grammar in the self-help medium. Grammar is neutral, neither good nor bad. One of the hallmarks of this grammar, ironically, is the use of what works for me, which softens a recommendation from a should or a supposed to into sharing personal experience. I'd love to know if you've noticed any patterns in that kind of grammar around momfluencing that makes it especially sticky or especially shareable. Like, what is it about the way people are communicating? I think that's such a interesting, important question. Um, yeah, there are tons of trends that I see talking to the consumer or the follower directly like, hey, mama, I just got to share this thing that worked for me recently. And a lot of times it's not explicit. I know that this is the best way to do things. I think it's actually the fact that it's not explicit that makes it more powerful because it's often like, I'm not an expert, you know, but I can only share what worked for me. But I wanted to share a little about baby Bobby's journey with peaches or whatever. And because you have most likely, you know, been following this person for a while, you're already invested in baby Bobby. You're already in invested in 
you know, whoever this momfluencer is in her life. In a weird way, you're more likely to trust a friend just sharing her story than a faceless, nameless, personality-less expert. Like, you know, the author of a self-help book, for example. I guess where it gets tricky is that if I'm going to ask my best friend who I've known for eight years for, you know, to share her insight about sleep training or whatever... I know so many things about her, her values, her life, her lifestyle, her culture, her background that contributed contributed to her making the decisions she did. So I'm able to hear her story about sleep training and make a much more um, educated assessment of whether or not that's going to work and translate for me. Whereas if I'm taking it from an influencer or a momfluencer, whose story I've been following for eight years, because of parasocial relationships, I can be sort of tricked into thinking that she's akin to my IRL best friend who I've known for eight years. And she's just not, you know, we I only know what she has chosen to share with her audience of like 30,000 people. I asked Sarah about how influencer grammar might further erode our sense of trust, which we discussed at length in my conversation with sociologist Patrick Sheehan. There's a subset of like, I don't even know what I would call them, like wellness, earthy, crunchy momfluencers whose bread and butter is zooming in on every tiny detail about daily life and figuring out the best way, you know, I'm trying to think of something absurd. <laughs> I did an episode, um, a podcast episode with Virginia Soulsmith about like calf liver gummies, for example, like recipes to make your own calf liver gummies because it supports X, Y, and Z in your immune system or whatever. <laughs> your face. <laughs> <laughs> that is absurd. <laughs> I mean, these accounts, their whole thing is trust no one. You can only trust yourself and your family. Um, do everything for yourself. Homeschool your kids. Only you can be trusted. And this obsession with the self, like, you know, healthiest body, whatever, most beautiful body, like everything is so inward facing, really can only exist when you have certain layers of privilege. Perhaps instead of rugged individualism, influencer grammar relies on a sort of impeccable individualism. It's not really pioneering new territory or building your legacy, so much as it is never letting your attention waver from the smallest detail, never providing a door into your carefully constructed reality. And as DeBoard and countless others have argued, this is profoundly alienating. DeBoard writes, ultimately, the spectacle is the official language that separates individuals from one another. But Sarah's found that this isn't the only way influential mothers show up online. Communities of color, Black mothers, fat mothers, disabled mothers, marginalized mothers have understood the power of collective community for, you know, centuries. There really is a call to action to collectivize care. And I mean, there's, I'm going to bungle this and I don't have the exact data, but like, Free lunches in school, like stuff like that, came from these types of activists. Basically, if if a marginalized mother is fighting to get her kids free lunches, subsidized lunches, because she knows like communities she's close to can't afford lunches for any number of reasons, the whole collective whole benefits. 
Like everybody benefits. There was another example of like, it was unsafe drinking water and a bunch of moms got together and protested. And as a result, like the whole community got clean drinking water. So there's like a really rich history of mothers and caretakers pinpointing a problem that might impact them very uh, directly. But as a result, the entire community benefits. And so like these types of like holistic wellness mom influencers who are super focused on only their bodies and the bodies of their family, if they want their kid to have the best organic fruits and vegetables, their kid will have a better life if their whole community has access to healthy, you know, nutritious vegetables. And so there's a real disconnect between wanting the best for your family, but not wanting the best for the community and the world that that family lives in, that I think is inherent to white dominated spaces. Whether we're being influenced or doing the influencing, it's critical to be aware of the sway of the spectacle in daily life. Yeah, I think the biggest um, tip or trick that I have gleaned from like expert interviews with psychologists, sociologists, and academics who study this type of thing is to constantly be doing gut checks and asking yourselves critical questions of why you're doing things. So like, are you taking your kids to the pumpkin patch because you're the type of person who's always loved outdoor activities with the family? Or are you taking your kids to the pumpkin patch to get a cute photo for Insta? Are you stressing about making your kids cute shaped lunches or whatever? Or cat liver gummies. Yes, like like fruit cut into the shape of stars, whatever. Are you doing that because you take genuine joy in culinary stuff? Or are you doing that because you feel pressure to do it because you saw it on so many accounts online? Are you feeling rested and sort of regenerated after scrolling through pretty pictures for an hour? Or are you feeling overwhelmed and exhausted? So basically just always checking in about your motives and about the outcome after you've consumed social media. I dream about these people like they're in me. You know what I mean? Like every time I take a break from social media, I just feel a physical sense of lightness because there's just less input. There's just less images. There's just less points of view for me to constantly be comparing myself against consciously and subconsciously. Momfluencing, really any kind of social media influencing, is a natural product of the society of the spectacle. Sarah writes that exploring momfluencers doesn't come from a desire to take anyone down. She acknowledges that they are real people with real lives and real struggles. Her goal isn't to contribute to anyone's struggles by creating a social media pylon. Instead, she writes, She's trying to figure out what individual behaviors and individual content choices reveal about systems much bigger than any one of us. As you might imagine, I'm driven by a similar curiosity. Instead of just rolling my eyes or feeling mild irritation when I come across behaviors or content choices I find, let's say, distasteful, I want to know why I feel that way. What has that choice triggered in me? 
How does it elucidate an aspect of power that threatens my identity? What personal value is it bumping up against? How is it demonstrating a system I wish I didn't have to participate in? Hopefully this episode and the whole self-help LLC series is feeding your curiosity too. Before I close out this episode, I want to leave you with one more jarring idea from Debord's The Society of the Spectacle. Debord argues that we can't be free from work or enjoy more leisurely life when, quote, at any time an individual is either contributing to or consuming from the system of production. We can't claw back the energy we put into producing the spectacle, online or offline, by consuming the spectacle. The spectacle is self-affirming, self-reproducing, and capable of adapting any free resource to its purposes. And what's interesting to me, and even exciting, is that the last two and a half years of navigating a pandemic has started to bring this truth out from the shadows. It's becoming much more difficult to ignore the spectacle, online or offline. That may change how we behave and how we interact. But at the least, the awareness of the spectacle of contemporary life gives us a clearer map for how we move forward. Find out more about Sarah Peterson, sign up for her newsletter or pre-order her book at sarahpeterson.substack.com. Next week, we're going to explore self-help through The Voice. And I got to talk with Hollywood dialect coach Samara Bay about this very close to home topic. I walked in, everyone looked at me and the acting teacher who I really respected stopped class and he said, so what's the diagnosis? And I said, painfully, vocal nodules. And he said, huh, just as I thought, bad usage. <gasps> it's such a weird, awkward term, right? But I knew what it meant. You know what it means. It means on some level, whatever you did, it's your fault. Do we really all have the same 24 hours as Beyonce? Hey, What Works listeners. This is Jenny Blake, author of Free Time and host of the Free Time podcast. In honor of Tara's new book, What Works, a comprehensive framework to change the way we approach goal setting that's launching in just a few short weeks, we are borrowing that question from her fantastic breakdown of what's really behind it. And we are using that as a kickoff for a live podcast conversation via Spotify Live with me, Tara, and Charlie Gilkey. Charlie is the host of Productive Flourishing and the author of Start Finishing with a new book of his own in the works as we speak. Together, the three of us will be exploring time, money, and energy capacity, and then we'll open it up to questions from you during the second half. Our conversation will be on Thursday, October 20th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Get all the details and reminders on how to join us by registering at itsfreetime.com slash Spotify Live. That's itsfreetime.com slash Spotify Live. See you there. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Emily Kilduff is our production assistant. This episode was written by me, Tara McMullen, and edited by Marty Seafelt and me. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. All of the music in today's episode is from Track Club by Marmoset, a certified B Corp. 
What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock and Conestoga peoples in what is now called Central Pennsylvania. The Yellow House sits on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation. 